every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis. I hope you had a fantastic festive season and I wish you a very happy, healthy and successful new year. Welcome to the first Money Talk of 2024. I'll be here every business day this year, bringing you the latest business and finance news from across Asia. You can find us on Substack at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And you can also contact the show on Facebook. Peter Lewis Money Talk is the page. And on X at Money Talk R3. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. Here are the business and finance headlines for Wednesday, the 3rd of January, 2024. China's economy showed fresh signs of weakness in the final month of last year. An official survey by the National Bureau of Statistics released Sunday showed factory activities slid deeper into contraction in December. The manufacturing PMI in China fell to 49 from 49.4 in the prime month, missing economists' estimates of 49.5. However, a Kaishin survey released yesterday showed that manufacturing activity in China among smaller private businesses expanded in December. President Xi Jinping used his annual New Year address to the nation to issue a warning to Taiwan's voters just days ahead of the island's presidential election on January the 13th. In a televised speech on Sunday evening, President Xi said the reunification of Taiwan and China was a historical inevitability. Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen, who delivered her final New Year address on Monday in Taipei, said cross-strait relations should be decided by democracy and the will of the Taiwanese people. Chinese group BYD has unseated Tesla as the world's top-selling electric vehicle manufacturer after reporting bumper fourth-quarter sales. A Shenzhen-based company said on Monday that it sold a record 526,000 of its battery-only vehicles in the quarter, helped by a more than 70% surge in December sales. On Tuesday, Tesla reported 485,000 deliveries for the fourth quarter, bringing the 2023 total to 1.8 million. Global bond and stock markets added almost 20 trillion US dollars in capitalization during 2023, and all of that gain came in the last two months of the year. The gains were dominated by global stocks, which added 13.3 trillion, while global bonds rose by $6.1 trillion. The MSCI World Index surged by 16% since late October and was up 22% last year, its best performance for four years. But in contrast to the strong performance seen in other global markets, Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index sank for an unprecedented fourth consecutive year and the fifth year out of the past six. The Citish Benchmark Index fell 13.8% in 2023. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Sullivan, founder of Asian Market Sense, and Nick Marrow, lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. With a view from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. U.S. stocks dropped on Tuesday amid rising bond yields as investors scaled back bets on rapid interest rate cuts from the Federal Reserve. The S&P 500 index lost 0.6% to settle at 4,743. The Dow added 26 points, or 0.1%, to close at 37,715. And the Nasdaq Composite was pulled lower by poor performance in technology stocks. The tech-heavy index tumbled 1.6% to 14,766. 
Shares of Apple were down 3.6% after Barclays downgraded the member of the Magnificent Seven basket to an underweight rating. US Treasury yields kicked off 2024 by jumping higher. The 10-year yield rose 8 basis points to a three-week high of 3.94%. On Tuesday, the dollar jumped higher to start 2024. The US dollar index climbed 0.9% to 102 and a quarter. That's its biggest daily gain since March 2023. Gold was 0.2% lower at $2,058 an ounce. Oil prices initially jumped over 2% higher after Iran dispatched a warship to the Red Sea in response to the US Navy's sinking of three Houthi boats over the weekend. But the contract reversed gains later in the session amid a backdrop of record US production and faltering demand in China. Brent crude oil settled 1.3% lower at $76.09 a barrel. Bitcoin surged to its highest level since April 2022 amid speculation that the US Securities and Exchange Commission will soon grant regulatory approval for exchange-traded funds tied to the cryptocurrency's spot price. The world's largest cryptocurrency rose to $45,900 at one stage yesterday, bringing its total gains since the beginning of October to 70%, and it's currently trading at $44,850. Chinese stocks fell on the first day of trading in 2024 after official data showed China's manufacturing PMI contracted further in December. The Hang Seng Index closed 259 points lower or 1.5% at 16,789. The Tech Index slid 1.3%. On the mainland, as trading resumed after the New Year holiday, the Shanghai Composite fell 0.4% to 2,962 and the CSI 300 tumbled 1.3%. Looks like Hong Kong stocks are going to decline about 1.2% at the open. Futures markets pointing to a decline of about 200 points for the Hang Seng, setting it off at about 16,590 when trading gets going this morning. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's on the first Money Talk of 2024, let's welcome our guests. We have with us Andrew Sullivan, founder of Asian Market Sense. Happy New Year, Andrew. Happy New Year to you, Peter. And also with us is Nick Marrow, who's lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. Welcome and Happy New Year to you as well, Nick. Happy New Year, Peter. Thank you. Now, as you heard there at the beginning, global bond and stock markets, they added almost $20 trillion, US dollars, that is, in capitalization during 2023. And nearly all of that gain came in the last two months of the year. The gains were dominated by global stocks, which added $13.3 trillion. Global bonds rose by $6.1 trillion. And global stock markets, they recorded their strongest year since 2019, as investors bet that major central banks have finished raising interest rates and are going to cut them rapidly next year. The MSCI World Index um, it was up 22% last year. That's its best performance for four years. That was largely fueled by the Wall Street's S&P 500 index. That surged 14% since October and 24% over the year, ending the last trading day of 2023. Just not 0.6% shy of its all-time record. 
and the gains have been driven by a dramatic shift in interest rate expectations. Um, Andrew, let me ask you, if, if we go back to the beginning of last year, there were three calls that pretty well all analysts were making. That was sell US stocks, buy treasuries, buy Chinese stocks. And in fact, in the end, it turned out uh, it would have been better off doing the reverse of, of all those three. How, how, how did um, the consensus get it so wrong last year? What did they miss? Well, I don't think they were wrong on the Chinese play, to be honest, because we've just seen Chinese pivot as far as their zero COVID policy was concerned. I think the uh, the problem really came is the fact that the recovery in China didn't didn't pan out as people were expecting, largely because of the you know the overhang of the property crisis that has uh, continued to be unresolved in China. But I think the you know with regard to the other two, I mean, it, again, people are still concerned about uh, the strength of the US economy. Economy. And certainly this time last year, the strength of the US dollar was a concern and it was a, a very, very crowded trade. And we did see you know, some people come out of that trade through the year. Um, but, you know, the, the, the US economy, you know, did stay uh, much stronger than people were expecting. Um, Fed did do a pivot themselves as they realized that inflation uh, wasn't uh, transitory. If you remember, they were saying you know, last Christmas that they just thought it was a transitory thing. They realized it wasn't and moved very quickly to raise rates, which again gave a good reason to be in the US dollar and the US economy. Mm. Nick, do you think maybe um, they were just a year out that maybe at the beginning of this year, we are going to see the US recession and US stocks fall? And maybe now is the right time to start buying Chinese stocks after uh, the, the terrible year we had last year. Yeah, I feel like that discussion is kind of similar to what we've been having the last couple of years, this idea that we know shocks are coming and shocks eventually do materialize, but the timing tends to be a little bit off. Um, people maybe are a bit more anxious um, initially, uh, and it takes a while for that anxiety to feed actually into the data or into the market. Um, I think we are getting some signs uh, in U.S. economic data around the resilience of consumer spending maybe tapering off a little bit. The idea that the effects of you know the tightening by the Fed are now finally feeding into the economy, and that six-month time lag is starting to really bite. Um, and so... I mean, right now, I think if we look into the very near term, uh, and I'm talking about the next couple of quarters, we could see a period of a bit more sustained stress than I think people, um, you know, pe people were predicting to happen a couple quarters ago and are now finally materializing. Um, so the near term outlook does look a little bit kind of risky. And I think that's one of the reasons why the market is pricing in these expectations for, um, you know, sustained easing by not just the Fed, but other major central banks uh, globally. Um, and so, yeah, the near term outlook, I think it, it's still relatively kind of concerning. Um, but one thing that has continued to surprise us, as you've pointed out, Peter, is the fact that the U.S. economy and particularly U.S. consumers have proven more resilient um, than a lot of us have expected. And so, you know, risk to the upside are still very much there. Mm. I mean, Andrew, the, the big driver, of course, behind last year was those magnificent China seven so stocks and also um, particularly anything related to AI. But is this the year now where these companies that have been riding the AI wave, they, they've got to prove themselves this year and show that actually there is money to be made from it? Andrew? I think monetization of AI monetization of AI is going to be very, very important. Uh, and and I think, you know, a lot of these firms aren't yet... I mean, their data isn't in a in a uh, 
in a format that can be easily used by AI yet. So there's a lot of cleaning up of the data that's got to take place. Uh, and people have really got to try and uh, take it on board. I mean, people aren't sure whether they should be going in-house with this or being using third-party contractors. I think the, 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 the reality is it's still going to take a lot of time for people to play with AI and understand what it means. And in the meantime, I think a lot of investors are looking elsewhere in the supply chain from NVIDIA to other stocks that are going to benefit, whether that's you're going all the way down to the data centers, to the memory side, uh, or, or just to the wiring side, transformers, electricity demand, uh, cooling. There's a whole range of, of different avenues that are going to be looked to be played out here. Um, and I don't think, I think rather like the internet, there's not going to be one killer app for, uh, for AI, but there are going to be a lot of different usages of it. And it's a matter of uh, finding ones that are good investments. Mm. Do you think, Nick, AI, is that going to be a big theme once again this year? And are we going to carry on seeing these, these big outperformers in, uh, in some of these big tech stocks? Yeah, I think so. I mean, based on just everything that Andrew said, I mean, there's so much happening in AI. Um, and there's just so much avenues for a lot of really exciting things to happen. I think in many ways, even if there isn't going to be you know, a killer app, it is going to revolutionize how we do things, how we think about things. I guess the one caveat that we're looking at and that we're a little bit worried about is the geopolitical angle here. Um, there's so much happening with AI and everyone wants to get involved. But this is happening at a time when AI is also becoming kind of the next battleground or one of the next battlegrounds of geopolitical tensions, particularly between China, not just China and the U.S., but China and the West more generally. Um, this you know, feeds into what's happening with export controls and restrictions over, say, semiconductors. We just saw news earlier, I think overnight or um, earlier this week, around how the U.S. has pressed ASML to uh, restrict some of their advanced equipment shipments to China a bit earlier than um, their earlier deadline had, had stipulated. And so, I mean, one of the big constraints here is how is policy and how are these tensions, how are they going to constrain a lot of the, um, the excitement and activity that could manifest under AI? Um, and so that's one of the things that I think investors will need to be aware of in terms of where they position themselves as this sector develops and where these opportunities kind of emerge. Um, it doesn't mean that the you know AI is, is less attractive or there aren't any opportunities there, but there are still risks that need to kind of um, we need to be aware of. I mean, on that theme of um, geopolitical tensions and trade tensions, I think if there was one word for 2023 that stood out, it, it was de-risking, wasn't it? Which sort of came up as a sort of an alternative to decoupling. The, the, the G7 decided they didn't like the word decoupling, so they, they tagged on to de-risking. Um, is that going to be a theme, do you think, this year as well? I think so. Um, and I think I mean, when you look at the discussion between decoupling and de-risking, at the end of the day, it's just kind of mincing words a bit. I mean, you look at what's happening with the Europeans, for example, and just in the last couple of months alone, the kind of um, you know array of European trade measures that have been you know unveiled against China or are being un under discussion right now in regards to China, it really has been quite aggressive. It's included things like electric vehicles and chips, but we're seeing discussions around you know medical devices, wind turbines, uh, steel products. Um, the gravity in terms of trade tensions just in the last couple of months alone seems to have shifted away from U.S.-China and more towards EU-China. Um, and so whatever we want to call it, whether it's decoupling or de-risking, this idea of 
geopolitics infiltrating the discussion around trade um, and kind of economic affairs, that's going to continue. Um, and regardless of what happens with China's rebound or kind of you know Europe's slowdown or what's happening with interest rates, geopolitics is going to be continue to be um, an in- increasingly important theme. I think as we look into 2024 and likely the years beyond, uh, there just seems to be so much happening and um, quite a number of events just immediately um, on the horizon. Andrew, where does, where does de-risking go from here? It's sort of spreading out, isn't it, to a whole range of companies and, and sectors and, and countries as, as, as people try to diversify their, um, their supply chains. Where, where do you see this going? Well, I think we've already seen that you know, they will try and friend shore. So places like Mexico have benefited, certainly. But I also think you know, we've seen people look at India. Um, I think within Asia, we've already seen a lot of uh, uh, processes move out of China into Vietnam and into Indonesia and Malaysia. Uh, I think that trend will continue. You may see you know, some movement into uh, Cambodia as well. But I think for a lot of people, India is the big one. Uh, we're also seeing, uh, interestingly, uh, a number of the Japanese firms taking their uh, supply chains out of China and onshoring them again. Um, so I think there's that, that trend is going to continue. And I think going back to the earlier point, that's kind of what's making uh, China less investable for a lot of people. Uh, because of the policy changes that happen so quickly there, people are very wary about putting their manufacturing there again. Mm. You know, China locked itself down, uh, and that's a concern. You can't have that. You can't have a just-in-time uh, supply chain anymore if, if the country that your supply chain routes through is, uh, is likely just to isolate itself. Um, and I, I think it'll take uh, investors a long time to rebuild confidence in, you know, in the Chinese administration for, you know, acting o- in the best interests of commerce rather than in the best interests of the party. Is it, Nick, is, is de-risking working? I mean, we know that supply chains are certainly getting longer, but are they necessarily diversifying? Are, are you seeing that um, happening as, as um, you know, as countries like the US hope? Well, probably not going to like this answer because it's a very economist answer, but yes and no. Um, <laughs> yes, in the sense to, to what Andrew was saying, in the sense that there is a lot of genuine interest in places like India or Southeast Asia or Latin America, even Eastern Europe to some countries, um, in terms of supply chain relocation and uh, you know, manufacturing investment that is materializing as part of all of that. So we are seeing activity happen on the ground. And as part of that, we are indeed seeing some processes, some manufacturing processes that China had long dominated move out to other markets. And so we are indeed seeing elements of this this diversification. At the same time, um, China is an incredibly important part, plays an incredibly important part in the global supply chain. Um, When we've seen supply chains reroute into Vietnam or Malaysia, many of the supply chains are still very much dependent on raw materials or intermediate components that are being sourced from China. And if you look at at the trade data, Chinese exports to ASEAN are increasing as exports to the U.S. are kind of falling off. Um, but then ASEAN exports to the U.S. are increasing. And so really it's just, you know, rather than the product going directly from China to the U.S., it's going from China to Vietnam and then to the U.S. Um, that's not true for every product, every industry, but that does seem to be kind of the kind of overall guiding narrative here. This idea that indeed supply chains are lengthening, they are diversifying, but they're not cutting China out of the equation. And really it depends on who you're talking to in terms of what the goals are here. If you're a company that just wants to diversify and um, kind of make sure that your just-in-time supply chain operations are going to be insulated from shock, this might be sufficient. If you're a policymaker in D.C. who 
wants to get Chinese products completely out of your, you know, supply chain basket or your <laughs> your economy, then this probably is not going to be the outcome that you're hoping for. Mm. I mean, Andrew, I mean, I suppose the classic example of this is Taiwan, isn't it? 92% of all high-end semiconductors until recently were made um, in, in Taiwan. But now we're seeing a, a countries like the US, Europe, building their own chip industries and China as well, of course, and trying to create more sort of independence in areas such as, as rare earth minerals, electric vehicles, pharmaceuticals, and, and, and so on. So presumably Taiwan um, is, is one of those countries that, well, it's, it's not a beneficiary really of this, is it? Well, I think Taiwan is slightly different because, I mean, Taiwan, yes, they, they are moving a lot of those processes overseas, but they're, they're keeping the key the most advanced tech at home, that's still going to be the Taiwanese umbrella. That's still a part of their defense policy, I think. Um, and, you know, that kind of makes sense as well, because even though TSMC is looking at building plants in America, in Japan and uh, in Europe, the, the reality is that they, they really aren't the skilled technicians that these processes need currently available in those countries um, because we allowed all of this technology to become very precise and we outsourced a lot of it uh, we've lost other countries have lost that technical know-how uh, to build it up and i think to, to an extent that does rather justify the the us's policy of trying to curtail china's uh, uh, growth in 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 the chip sector is the fact that actually without being a leader in this field, uh, finding the technicians that you need just to operate the plants, let alone to design and build the plants, is very, very difficult. I mean, Nick, you mentioned ASML earlier. I mean, uh, AS, ASML has come under pressure from the United States to, uh, to, to cut off sales of advanced equipment to China. Are we going to see more of that sort of pressure this year? I think so. I mean, I think it was in September in 2023 when we received kind of news that China had achieved significant advances in very advanced chip manufacturing. I think they had reached um, the five nanometer mark, uh, seven nanometer mark. Anyway, one of the nanometer marks which signaled significant advances in innovation. That was a wake-up call to not just industry, but also policymakers, because this was one of the main goals that, you know, particularly the U.S. export controls were designed to prevent from happening. Um, and upon kind of investigation of what happened here, there seems to be, you know, those, those breakthroughs were achieved via a combination of potentially technology, technology leakages, but also the utilization of you know, equipment that had not been subject to, subject to those export controls, but which still allowed China to achieve those advances. I think right now the conversation in D.C. and maybe other capitals in the world are, are around, you know, do these export controls need to be tighter? Because they're coming at the cost of preventing their companies from, you know, expanding their commercial opportunities in the Chinese market. And so if you're going to do that, you better ensure that these controls are tight um, and that they're not going to, you know, embolden your Chinese competitors to, you know, continue to innovate and eventually become, um, you know, rivals to your home, homegrown companies. Essentially, you don't want to, you know, have, having shot, you don't want to shoot yourself in the foot as a result of these policies. Um, I think this discussion is going to continue into 2024, this idea that there needs to be a stronger approach um, to China's tech sector and the fact that these technology breakthroughs um, pre present a pretty significant threat to national security. Um, and that's going to be something that's not just going to be a conversation in the U.S. It's probably going to be a conversation in Europe, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea as well.
Okay, Andrew, let me switch to Hong Kong and China. I'm wondering, what are the chances of a, a surprise from China this year? And that maybe at the third plenum, um, we get much stronger signals of China supporting the economy, also maybe supporting uh, the, the property developers, the property sector. Um, do you think there's a chance we could see that? Personally, I don't, to be honest with you. Um, I think they are too concerned about uh, the potential for inflation. And, and reality is that you know this started, this housing crisis started because President Xi wanted to get money out of property and into advanced technology. Um, you know, in China, a lot of people use property as a store of value, like the Indians use gold. Mm. That doesn't help China, you know, finance. Uh, as Nick was just saying, finance its uh, its move up the technical ladder to to start doing these new processes. Um, it needs you know the amount of money that TSMC spends on R and D. You know puts some you know GDP countries GDP into into shame really, uh, and that's the nature of the amount of finance they need to find. And the reality is a lot of that money in China is is just lying idle. In empty properties, and that's, this is what you know. Xi had the right idea about trying to move the money out. He just tried, I think, to do it too quickly, uh, and has created another, you know, unforeseen, you know, casualty as as a result of that. Um, the idea was a good one, but the the implementation of it was a bad, badly done. And now they now they have two problems. One is that they're behind on technology, and secondly, that they have a crisis, and actually the value of that money tied up in property is going down. Mm. Well, uh, what do you think, Nick? Are you optimistic at all that we may see more policy support out of the mainland uh, this year, which we were hoping for last year, but didn't really materialise? Uh, cautiously. So, I mean, we're, we'll we'll probably see more policy support just given the fact that if we see a 5% growth target in 2024, for example, that is going to necessitate more government spending. And so inevitably there is going to have to be, you know, a enhancement in government support measures to make up for growth that's not coming out of other parts of the economy. Um, so there is going to be some support measures, but the reason why I'm kind of equivocating here is the fact that, you know, the, the expectations for really large scale stimulus um, and effective stimulus, maybe I should say that, that's probably going to be challenging um, just because, um, I mean, the property sector is in such a mess right now and it's such a distraction for policymakers um, that it, it really is complicating maybe the defect, the effective deployment of kind of fiscal resources to ensure that, you know, money is being channeled into actually productive parts of the economy. That's, that's one thing. The second thing is for everything that we've kind of talked about and what, what Andrew mentioned as well, um, when we look at 2023, one of the main themes for China was policy uncertainty and the fact that you had all of these policies that were coming out which were either disappointing market expectations or actually further undermining not just foreign investor confidence but private investor confidence as well. I think one thing that we're seeing with the leadership is that it has not signaled any kind of intent to move away from that kind of policy design, this idea that policymaking is still going to be relatively erratic. There's still going to be kind of negative surprises that affect in, uh, investor confidence. Just, you know, the last week we saw, you know, draft regulations in the video game industry, which were then kind of um, rescinded um, because of the negative effects it had on the market. I think that's going to be something that we see in 2024, this idea that policymaking is still going to be really volatile. And as a result of that volatility, um, investor confidence is still going to be relatively tepid. So, Andrew, if we're going to have... Also, Nick, I, I 
Uh, I was just going to say, just following up from what Nick said there, The Economist ran a very good article recently. I mean, the clampdown on data may also mean that the top guys in policymaking in China aren't really getting a true picture of what's happening on the ground. And I think that's another concern for investors. Um, this clampdown and security on information is actually stifling the ability of, of Xi, now that he's got a much tighter knit of close allies you know, really running the country, getting a, a proper picture of the state of the economy. So if we're going to have this volatile policy making continuing this year, what does that mean for the outlook for Hong Kong equities? We saw them the, the worst performer in the world last year, the Hang Seng down 14% almost. Um, we're down four consecutive years, five years out of the past six. Any reasons for us to be optimistic that maybe this year we will finally see the turnaround? I'm not sure about a turnaround, but I think you'll still see selective uh, opportunities. Certainly, Hong Kong property is very closely geared to Fed interest rates. And if we do see an easing in interest rates there, you could see the property developers uh, doing slightly better. Um, but the reality is, in you know, Hong Kong property is very expensive. And if Hong Kong is no longer going to be the, the big international finance center that it has been in the past and the gateway into China, which seem, it seems to be being curtailed by uh, the, the national security law worries and things like that, then you know the, the outlook for Hong Kong is actually quite depressing. Um, but interest rates and a play on Hong Kong property would be one. And there are still some good companies listed, you know, uh, you've got Tektronics making, you know, uh, computer, uh, sorry, electronic goods, which if the you know people aren't moving in the US, they're going to do more DIY. That has the opportunity. We see, um, you know, some of the Samsonite as people come back to go traveling, they're likely to do well. So I think there are still good companies there, but I think you have to be a lot more selective uh, and pick companies rather than saying I'm going to invest in the HSI. We do seem to have the national team um, intervening. Certainly last week, they appeared to be doing so, didn't they? Buying ETFs quite aggressively um, in the market. Is, is that maybe the way forward? I mean, some, some of the big popular stocks among foreign investors like Alibaba, Tencent have really um, been the poster boys of everything that's gone wrong in Hong Kong and China over, over the past year or so. Is, is maybe the story to try and avoid um, some of those and, and, and look out at, at some more broader, uh, at the broader picture, some, uh, some, some other uh, less love stocks in Hong Kong and China. I think there's an element to that, but I think also the, the, the problem really comes that a lot of people will, just as for the last 15 years we've been trading Asia x Japan, we'll now start trading Asia x China. Uh, and interestingly, people will look at you know stocks in Japan and in Korea that allow you to pay the consumer market in in China rather than having to go directly into China. Uh, and that that will be to the the detriment, I think, of Hong Kong in the in the longer run. And Nick, finally, a quick thought on Japan, 2023's best performing market um, in in Asia, recorded a 28% gain. The Nikkei 225 back to sort of 33 year highs. What's the outlook for Japan? Yeah, um, well, one thing that we're looking at really closely 
um, is what's happening with monetary policy um, and whether the BOJ is, or to what extent the BOJ is going to, you know, tweak its control, yield curve control. Um, I mean, we're still expecting um, the BOJ to normalize its policy settings gradually in the next two years. We're expecting uh, relatively uh, steady but moderate growth um, in real GDP, kind of uh, mild inflation. Um, but this is going to be something which weighs very heavily on the Japanese leadership. Um, in addition to what's happening in the economic picture, um, we are seeing some electoral dynamics um, come to the fold in Japan uh, in 2024. Um, and I think that's going to have kind of a trickle-down effect for policy as well. So um, I guess for all of us looking at Japan in 2024, it'll be a mixture of what's happening with monetary policy, kind of, you know, not necessarily all that um, amazing growth, but kind of stable growth, and then the political dynamics and how that's going to change all of that. Andrew, quick thought from you on Japan for 2024. Yeah, I agree with with, which, with what Nick's just said. I think that's a very good summary of it. I think uh, it's expected to change policy. They've indicated that they want to change policy. Um, and I think the other thing people are seeing in Japan is, you know, change at the corporate level um, and in the way the companies are managed, which makes them much more attractive, uh, open to more M&A, um, all the things that we haven't really seen in Hong Kong for the last two or three years, which is going to highlight that. And of course, the other one that people will look at is India. Uh, those two markets, I think, are probably going to be top of people's radar screens. Okay. Well, thank you both very much for your thoughts this morning. Great to hear from you and have a great year ahead. That's Andrew Sullivan, who is founder of Asian Market Sense. Nick Marrow, lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. <laughs> I'm joined now by Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Morning, William, and Happy New Year to you. Good morning and Happy New Year. Well, Japan, 2023, it was the star market uh, in, in Asia, uh, the best performing uh, the best performing regional market, up 28% uh, year to date, back to 33-year highs. I mean, if, if you could sum up um, what was behind that, what, what were the main drivers behind this outstanding performance for Japan? Well, I think Japan had a bit of a safe haven halo in 2023. I think when investors looked at the world at large, they looked at the U.S., which had the highest bond yields in 17 years, the Federal Reserve raising interest rates, Moody's Investors Service warning about a downgrade, China slowing, uh, Europe kind of walking in place. You put all these pieces together and Japan looked like a relatively quiet market with a lot of cash-rich uh, some would argue undervalued companies to consider. Uh, Warren Buffett, of course, in recent years, has shined a bit of a spotlight in Japan's direction. And you put together the geopolitical chaos of 2023, and Japan seemed like a, a quieter, safer place to be. And I think the stock mm. market, uh, in many ways, reflected that. So is it going to be a quiet, safe place to be in 2024 as well? Can, can this continue? Well, considering the first couple of days of this year, I, I'm, I'm kind of reluctant to say that. Um, yeah, it's been a scary who start. Who knows? I mean, <clears throat> it has. I mean, one of the problems Japan has is that Japan arguably ended 2023 uh, in something of a recession, right? You saw the economy contract 2.9% uh, uh, in the July to September period from the previous quarter. And in some ways, you, know, you can argue that Japan might be in something of a modest recession at this point. But one of the problems you see as 2024 begins is that the, the external sector, the external scene is not great, given the fact that China is slowing the U.S., who knows. Um, you have a lot of geopolitical issues to worry about. And the other thing, too, is 
Here in Japan, Prime Minister Kishida's approval ratings are about 17%. And so for investors who've been hoping that he would get around to enacting big economic reforms, the question is, does he have the political capital, A, to do that? And B, uh, will Prime Minister Kishida be shown the door pretty soon? Because, you know, in Japan, when uh, cabinet's approval rating falls below 30%, that's kind of the danger zone. You have mm. Prime Minister Kishida now at 17%. So it's an open question. So is that going to impact the markets? Is there going to be a focus on, on politics or are investors just going to plow ahead in it regardless? Well, it could be. I think it it kind of casts a lot of doubt on the Bank of Japan, right? I think many investors assumed that 2023 would be the year when the Bank of Japan finally, finally began to exit quantitative easing. That didn't happen. And if you're looking at, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, if you're looking at the year ahead, there's nothing in what Governor Ueda is saying at the BOJ to give us any confidence that the BOJ will be making very big decisions over the next few months. And that's a bit of a, a wild card. I think, you know, one of the big issues for Japan, of course, is China, the trajectory of Asia's biggest economy. And until Japan has a better sense of where China's heading in the next six months, it's hard to get a real grain on the economy here. So is the Bank of Japan going to see the wage inflation that, that it's hoping for and, and everything seems to be depending um, upon that arriving for us to, uh, to start moving away from this negative interest rate policy? It's a good point because a lot of the inflation Japan has experienced to date has been imported from the external sector. You know, you've had oil prices, you've had food prices elevated over the last couple of years. But will Japan begin to generate some domestic inflation, which is kind of what it's wanted over time. I mean, I, I think in many ways, the BOJ is trying to create this virtuous cycle where uh, companies have record profits, they share it with workers, and you have this virtuous cycle of increased consumption. Will that happen in the year ahead? Hopefully it will. I mean, I think it will depend a lot on the external sector and whether or not Japan is importing too much inflation. But certainly the BOJ does have a scope to begin stepping away from QE. It has, I think it has political capital to begin stepping away from QE. And the question is, does Governor Ueda, does he have the courage to do so? I hope he does, but we'll see. Mm. I mean, and the other successful trade last year, of course, as well as buying uh, Japanese equities, was shorting <laughs> Japanese government bonds, which up until recently was a pretty perilous strategy, wasn't it? It's, uh, a lot of people went, uh, went broke pretty quickly trying to do that. But uh, this, last year, that, that strategy worked. Exactly. It's been the ultimate widowmaker trade in recent years. I think one of the biggest questions for the world at this point is the so-called yen carry trade, right? Mm. When, you know, for the last 20 years or so, borrowing cheaply in yen and redistributing those proceeds to higher yielding markets everywhere has been a very reliable trade. Uh, and if the yen is going to experience volatility in the, the months ahead, what does it mean for the yen carry trade? And that's another thing the BOJ has to worry about. Um, if the BOJ does do anything rash, and global markets do begin to experience some turbulence, the last thing Japan wants to be is blamed for the next, uh, well, I don't want to say global financial crisis, but the next bit of um, financial instability. Mm. And so the Bank of Japan really does have a lot to consider as it, uh, as it looks at the year ahead. And what about companies? Uh, they're posting better results, aren't they? I mean, obviously, that's partly been due to uh, the, the weaker yen. But is this helping um, making them more competitive and adding more fuel to the, the stock market fire? Well, it, it, you know, it's, it's a very difficult moment here in Japan because, again, we've had 
23, 24 years of zero interest rates, 22 years of quantitative easing, a lot of companies, a lot of banks in Japan have taken it for granted that we would be experiencing free money forever. Now we're looking at the specter of the BOJ tapering and stepping away from that. And the question is, you know, can corporate Japan uh, profit and thrive with Without the yen uh, depreciating, without the BOJ pumping lots of money into the economy, and it is a, a unique challenge for corporate chieftains, many of whom have not operated in an environment where yields and interest rates were rising. So the question really is: Is corporate Japan as ready uh, for the BOJ to step away from QE as we hope? And that's an open question. And what about foreign investors? They've been pretty keen on Japan, haven't they? And they've had some pretty big cheerleaders last year, like Warren Buffett, who's been a big fan of uh, some Japanese companies. Um, are we going to see that, uh, do you think, continue uh, this year, particularly with the, with, the, with the weaker yen? And also, presumably, because um, China um, has, has been in the doldrums, companies diversifying away from China. That's also benefited Japan. Right. I mean, you know, for the foreseeable future, it should continue. I mean, when you look at some major investment banks like, say, Morgan Stanley, um, they're looking at Japan as a star market in 2024. And, you know, Japan, despite the fact that it might have ended 2023 and something of a technical recession, um, there is a sense that wages are rising in the year ahead. There is a sense that Japan is a stable, uh, hospi more hospitable place than it's been at a long time for foreign investors. I think the, the question, though, is will investors begin to look at the road below and feel that the government is keeping pace with this optimism in terms of economic reforms? And again, with Prime Minister Kishida having approval ratings around 17%, how much political capital does he have to take steps to raise Japan's economic game in the way that investors have hoped that he would? And I think it is this interesting tension between you know where Japan is at the moment and where investors hope it will be in, say, five years. And how important, how much focus should we put on Japan-China relations uh, next year? I mean, they haven't been great, have they, in, in this past year? Um, is this something we need to watch closely in 2024? I mean, I think so, yes. I, mean, I think Prime Minister Kushida has done, uh, you know, a, a significant He's taken significant steps, I'd argue, in trying to improve relations with China and with South Korea. I think the biggest wild card for the year ahead is the U.S. election, right? I mean, I think the one thing that Republicans and Democrats in Washington agree on is blaming China and blaming Asia in general for America's economic problems. And will Japan get dragged into that in some ways because of the weekend? Um, you know, Donald Trump, of course, is running for re-election. Or running for election again, should I say? And he has never been shy about talking about exchange rates. And you know, when you look at the yen being down uh, so significantly over the last few years, certainly over the last twelve months, will Japan find itself in harm's way as Democrats and Republicans do battle? Uh, you know, for, in terms of the upcoming election. So I think that's something Prime Minister Kishida has been worried about, and we'll see how that plays out. Is Japan ready for a Donald Trump presidency? I don't think anyone's ready for a Donald <laughs> Trump presidency, at least, least of all Japan. Um, I do think, you know, I think it, it is interesting the, the way in which you do see that the machinations here in Tokyo. Um, Prime Minister Kushida certainly would not relish the idea of Trump's return to the White House. I think China would be happier because I think Biden has been a quieter but more difficult adversary, if you will, in terms of meticulous and very surgical steps with regard to trade sanctions. Um, so... I think the idea of Trump coming back, I mean, as an American, I certainly lose sleep over that, <laughs> that prospect.
Mm. And um, could this drive sort of China, Japan and South Korea closer together if there was a Trump presidency? I mean, China would like to have a free trade agreement, wouldn't, wouldn't it, between, um, between the three countries? I think it's a good point. I think it would. I think that there were, you know, in the, the waning days of the, the, the Trump presidency, I think there there were, you know, signals that in some ways, you know, China, Japan, South Korea, the one thing they agreed on was they needed to join forces in some ways against the trade wars that Trump was waging in the U.S. And I think you will see some of that. And, you know, Trump also, he's someone who's talked before about reneging on U.S. debt, literally defaulting on U.S. debt to uh, to punish China. And, you know, when you put someone like someone like that back in the White House without accountability, buckle those seatbelts. Okay, well, it's going to be a very interesting year for uh, for Japan, that's for sure. Look forward to talking to you more in 2024 about Japan. And in the meantime, have a happy new year. You too. Same here, Peter. Thank you. That's Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening this morning. Just a reminder once again to take a look at my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, where you'll find my daily newsletter with a lot more business and finance news from across Asia to go with this show. I'll be back tomorrow when my guests will be Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Louis Coyce, Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings. Also with me is Tony Nash, founder of Complete Intelligence. Please catch me tomorrow. Money Talk 